0: is this Does this feel too loud to you guys? okay, because it feels okay. li- yeah, a little bit yeah so when when Shaila asked me if I would be willing to talk about the third of the what we call the noble truths, the third teaching, I thought it was <laughs> a, thought it was a great opportunity to explore the the four truths from the perspective of the third truth, because we usually don't. We usually just say, well, it's the cessation of suffering, it's the attainment of the goal, and then we move on, as if we know what we're talking about. Um, But we're talking about dukkha, obviously, and the end of dukkha. That's what the Buddha said he taught. And the way he articulated the insight that he had was through this uh, vision of the four teachings, the four truths, the four tasks, or as Stephen just sometimes calls them, the four. Um, and so there's there's uh, this is this, this is as it says in the in the flyer. This is the core teaching of the Buddha, um, who said he taught dukkha and the end of dukkha. We tend to translate the word dukkha. As suffering, which is an extreme version of it. There isn't really one English word that refers to what that word, dukkha, is referring to. Um, But the teaching is about dukkha. One of my early teachers, Ayakema, used to say that anything besides the Four Noble Truths is excess dharma. (laughs) So we're really, you know, dukkha and the end of dukkha, but what is dukkha? Dukkha is a word that refers to a, to a broad spectrum of our experience that includes all levels of dissatisfaction, from just uneasiness and impatience maybe, to frustration and irritation, to anger and rage and fear and panic, and that whole no response. And it can be mild, it can be intense. And so there's no real single English word that translates when I, f- I listened to "suffering" as a translation for years, and I thought of agony, and um, you know, sort of overdid it, I now I now prefer the the term uh, unsatisfactoriness, and what we what we ex- what we experience is dissatisfaction with life. So the Buddha was talking about putting an end to the dissatisfaction of life. A lot of, you know, when you try to understand the third teaching, which is about the attainment of the uh, the goal of practice, uh, you can't talk about it without talking about what you think you're accomplishing. So it's embedded in the other three truths or teachings as well. Let me um, let me share some understanding that I have of dukkha because I think. Uh, what we're looking at in the cessation of Dukkha is the deconstruction. It's deconstruction and then evaporation. Um, In the prison context where I work in a mental health uh, uh, context, where I can't talk Buddha Dharma Sangha, the Dharma still comes out. The first truth is shit happens. Nobody disagrees with that. They all say yeah. And the second truth we usually make it worse. People, yeah. And the third truth is we don't have to. And the fourth truth is, here's how. (laughs) So I want to frame an understanding of dukkha, because we're talking in that third truth about the cessation of dukkha. So I want to frame it uh, in our experience. Dukkha is something in the four truths that we're supposed to understand and find freedom from by living the Eightfold Path. Um, so, you guys have been in medit- sitting in meditation, resolved not to move, you're sitting there and you get an itch. Anybody had that happen? Or, or maybe your leg starts to go to sleep or your back starts to hurt. Something comes up, and then what happens? You go, oh, you want to scratch the itch, but you don't want to scratch the itch, and there's, you you know, that torment that you feel when you're doing that? Dukkha. That whole experience, the itch and the reaction to it, is Dukkha. It can be the same sort of thing you start feeling hungry and you want to resist eating because you're thinking calories maybe or just as a practice, but trying to resist hunger. You still have the visions. Remember Dick Gregory? Any of you remember Dick Gregory? He was an activist in the 60s who went on a, a hunger strikes against the Vietnam War for long periods of time and people would ask him what 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 do you think about when you're on a hunger strike? He said, hot dogs. <laughs> you know, your brain will conjure up what you want and then trying to resist that, trying to let go. That first truth, that first teaching, is just a list of unpleasantries, right? You know, and the Buddha said, understand this. It's the itch. Okay? It's, the, it's the hunger. It's the anger. It's, you know, all that unpleasant stuff. The second teaching is what makes that unpleasant stuff unsatisfactory, what makes it more than just unpleasant. You know, it's not just the itch. You know, if you, on a scale of 0 to 10, think of the itch just by itself. How intense is that? and then think of the struggle that you get into over the itch, and how intense is that on that same scale? You might take something that's a one and turn it into a four, you know. And it's interesting too, that second truth, the word that the Buddha uses is tanha, and the word literally means thirst. We translate it often as craving or desire, but it literally means thirst, and there's something important in that, I think, because thirst isn't something we do. Thirst is something that happens to us because of how our, the conditions in our body. And I think that the, the qualities of tanha, which I'm sure you talked about last week, and, and this is really interesting, because you're going to get four or five different versions of the Buddha's insight. Um so that that uh, that tanha, that word that we we translate as craving, also uh, it's a disposition in us. we want things pleasant you know it's the way we 're built we're, we're cultured by evolution to be survival machines and to use our brains to Create a map of this experience, so that we can navigate, and we navigate by pleasant and unpleasant. And we, and that disposition generates wanting and not wanting, greed and hatred, or lobha. And do, dosa, lobha. These are these. This is, the word is upadana. And uh, greed, which Greed, hatred, and delusion—lobha, dosa, and moha—and it's interesting. The, the Buddha chose that word particularly because uh, it was the word that the Brahmins used to describe the process of feeding the the uh, eternal flames in the temples. The pro, you know the the process of feeding them was upadana. And there were, th- there were three of them, and the Buddha sort of said, well, I'll give you three fires. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Upadana. Tanha Upadana. So it's not just the itch, it's the, it's the aversion that arises. And with an itch, you know, you can, after a while, learn how to just experience the itch and not agonize over it. Although, if a fly lands on you, You ever had that happen? That, that's, that's challenging. (laughs) But it's not impossible to just study that, depends on where it goes. Buzzing mosquitoes, I'm, I'm done. (laughs) But the, the third, the third teaching is is really interesting. The third truth is that the the word is neroda and it's usually translated as cessation. And it actually comes as a Pali term from the word. I mean, it meant in 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 most of the use of the language is shoring up a rice paddy to keep it from leaking. So the cessation, cessation of leaking is the same as the cessation of, it's the ending of, and stopping the leaking. So the metaphor is really interesting. We're leaking grief, hatred, and delusion out into the world, and the idea is to put an end to the leaking. Naroda. And and it's even more specific than that. It's Naroda tanha so it's so it's the cessation of tanha cessation of tanha upadana that the craving the wanting and the not wanting and the delusion and so what what's what the buddha is saying you're left if you if you don't struggle with the itch you're left with the itch the itch doesn't go away but you don't make it worse actually you know that's that teaching uh, is very powerful with the guys in the prison. Don't make it worse, because they, that's they can understand that. <laughs> and and I've I've seen quite a few of them, quite a few, a few. Just on on the basis of that phrase, turn turn themselves around. But it's the cessation. It's the deconstruction of dukkha, because dukkha is that is not just the itch, but it's also the struggle with it it's not just the hunger it's not just the unpleasantness it's the struggle with it it's the resistance to it but it does but, but if 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 the greed and the aversion stop you're still left with unpleasantness our general our general default strategy for dealing with unpleasantness and pain is to try to make it go away. Now, that's not a mistake. That's the way we're designed. The pain is, could be a a signal of a threat to the, to the organism. It's, to to respond to pain and unpleasantness, that's to act out our genetic inheritance. You know, it doesn't take a self (laughs) to do that. if you got if there's a body there it's going to it's going to happen um, pain aversion so the cessation of dukkha is is taking tanha and upadana off the table and it includes the cessation of course of delusion So the third truth is about the cessation of upadana. It's about the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the emphasis on the delusion part. Sometimes people read these words differently. So I'm sharing with you my understanding. Um, Stephen Batchelor looks at that and says, the Buddha didn't overcome suffering. He says he overcame suffering, but he still got old, he got sick, and died in pain. You know, so, but he overcame reactivity. He overcame that aversion. It's sort of saying the same thing. The idea is that if you don't struggle with the itch, you don't add that unpleasantness into the mix. the desiring, the wanting, the longing, the craving. That kind of stuff is, is set up by delusion. And so the, the third truth, the truth about liberation, it's liberation. Sometimes people think of it as nibbana, well, if you look in the, in the Nikaya, Sarput is asked, "Nibbana, Nibbana. What is Nibbana?" And he said, "It's experience, unconditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion." What is arhatship? He was asked next. What is full awakening? He said, "The ending of greed, hatred, and delusion." You know, if you in in the Majjhimma, he he. Uh, the Buddha was asked, "What is full understanding?" He said, "Full understanding is the end is the absence of greed, hatred and delusion. In that answer he conflates understanding and intention. but it's all about Upadana. it's the cessation of Upadana and the cessation of the, the just evaporation of, well, why would that happen? You know, if you tell yourself to let go. So you're, just, you're holding on, you're saying let go, let go, let go. But the mindful thing to notice is that you're holding on. And the other mindful thing is there's aversion to holding on. But you're not noticing that because you're expressing the desire. Let go, let go, let go, because you think if you let go, things will be better. Letting go happens when you see through you know, um, the delusion, when you reframe your experience. So if I say, you know, that pen is covered in poison, you put it down as fast as you can. You redefine this experience. You reframe it that's what happens with, with right view, the first element of the Eightfold Path. So the liberation of the liberation from uh, Dukkha comes from the abandonment of Tanha, abandonment of its products, greed, hatred, and delusion. So how do we know when we're deluded? There are a couple of clues. The first one is, you think you're not. (laughs) I know, it sounds flip, but let me just ask. Maybe somebody here knows. What is going on? Really? How did this happen? What is this? Anybody know? I mean, I, I didn't plan to be here. Anybody plan this? We just showed up, it's just happening. Nobody knows? And yet we think we've, we understand all kinds of things, we don't even know what's going on. I think that's kind of cute. <laughs> you know. But a better marker for delusion, I remember uh, Ajahn Pasano, who's the abbot at Abayagiri was asked, how do you know when you're deluded? And the answer he gave was, because you'll be suffering. I thought that was pretty glib because do we even recognize when we're suffering? You know, my, my sense is that it's sort of like, you know, the refrigerator goes off in the other room and you go, oh, you didn't even hear it, it was background noise. The air conditioners go off and, and oh, all of a sudden there's quiet, but in the background all along there's this uneasiness. Richard Farina had a book in the 60s that was titled, Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up To Me. You know? So how do we know when we're suffering? How do we know when there's dukkha? And I, I think the, the best marker that I've found, and it may not mark every example, but complaint. Complaint is, a, is, a, is an explicit expression of dissatisfaction. You could reframe the four truths as such is complaint, such the origin of complaint, such the cessation of complaint, and such the way of living without complaining. And the goal then would be to live a complaint-free life, figure out how to do that. But usually complaints, I mean, the world is the way it is. Whatever is going on is the way it is, and when we are excuse me, when we're complaining about it, that's about us. You know, Byron Katie, you know Byron Katie, she said, you know, uh, if you argue with the way things are, you'll lose, but only 100% of the time. (laughs) And complaint is a marker for, for dukkha, and it also comes from sort of diluted expectations. So the cessation of tanha includes the cessation of delusion. Well of course we have to recognize that we're deluded. If you ever wonder whether you're deluded just ask yourself what's going on. Just check in with with how deep your understanding is. Well, the, elements, the elements of delusion are reflected in what the Buddha called the viphalasas. You're, many of you are familiar with the four distortions of perception. And, and they have to do, the first one is, is to see the possibility, to see permanence in what is inherently impermanent the idea that there's nothing that's permanent nothing you know notions of something that's transcendent and permanent are just notions about that there's no nothing in our experience that's permanent even the idea of permanence you know if i ask you to think of an equilateral triangle is that the same equilateral triangle you thought of last time or did you make it up on the spot just knowing how to build one? You know. Impermanence means that there's, you know, a cloud is a thing, right? But mm, it, it, it's an appearance dependent on conditions. When the air warms up, the cloud just evaporates. Conditions change and it disappears. All things are subject to conditions. Nothing stands outside of conditions. It's delusional to think, you know, the, the, uh, the five remembrances, uh, you know, all that I love and all that I hold dear is of the nature to change. There's no way to avoid being separated from them. And yet, we're surprised when it happens. It's delusional to think that we're not going to lose what we care about and who we care about. And that we are surprised. The second of the, the second of the is to see the possibility of satisfaction. To think that satisfaction is possible. And in a way, you know, in terms of in terms of evolutionary uh, benefit, it's it's useful for us to think that satisfaction will be possible keeps us working at it we had ancestors or would be ancestors who gave up or you know decided it wasn't so they probably wouldn't last long enough to pass on their genes so we inherited the genetic material of the strivers so we're built to strive but what would we what would be satisfying ultimately we don't like this impermanence business. Well, we do when it's unpleasant, but the big impermanence, you know, we don't, we're not really fans. I think most of us have adopted a a posture of I'm gonna live forever or die trying. We don't like that, and we think, we think the satisfaction is possible. That there's something we could get that would, you know, once this happens, but, well, you know, because everything's changing, there's nothing, There's even if you got everything you wanted, it would be all downhill from there. All right, nothing could happen that would be right. The possibility of satisfaction, wow, well, you know, it's just, it's, it's, the Buddha said it was a, a distortion of our perception to think of the possibility of satisfaction. And the third is to see substance in what is inherently insubstantial. This is, this is the perception of, or the failure to perceive, anatta. We see things, even though all things are just conceptual constructs all of our experience is constantly changing. And what we what we have are, is a mirage. Really, it's a mirage. It's not that, you know, you go out in the desert and you see blue water out there. It's not that you're not seeing something. It's that it's not what you think it is. And when you look deeply you see that it's it's not the blue of water it's the blue of the reflected sky on the rising heat and you know it's not that there's nothing there Anatta. in the brahman's cosmology there was a unity underlying all things a, a spiritual oneness to the entire cosmos. And each of us is a part of that. That oneness, that, that transcendental oneness was Brahman. And because each of us was a part of that, each of us had that spark of Brahman that was Atman, That part of the universal whatever. And the the saying was that Atman is Brahman, and that we are to come into touch with that. The Buddha said, Anatta, no Atman. No permanent anything. The self is a mirage. It's not a nothing. It's just not what you think it is. And so the practice is to uncover that. Because if there isn't a self as we understand it, and there isn't a thing to grasp, really, because all things are changing. That doesn't mean the grasping isn't happening. It's like grabbing, trying to grab water coming out of the tap. You're clenching your hand. There's tension there. There's dukkha there. But you're not getting much water, you know? We think of ourselves in the things that, that define who. Our car. You know, you go and you stand next to your car and you, feel, you have feelings about your car that are different than the feelings about the car next to it that isn't, you don't even know, right? You know, my car. It's or, or, or everyone's retreat nightmare, you come, come back from while somebody's sitting on your cushion. What do you do? Oh no. The construction of self is a conceptual construction. And the fourth of the vipalasis is really interesting. It's the, the perception of beauty in what is inherently not beautiful. And that's sort of a fancy way of saying beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But it also is more it's, it's more precise. So it's like sugar is not sweet, really? Think about it. It's just a pile of chemicals. Sweet is what happens when it hits your tongue. It's an experience you have. You know, sound doesn't exist apart from your neurology. All these colors, do you think these colors are out there, Whatever this is? you think it's whatever that color is that happens in your neurology it's not out there it's the way your neural this experience is your own experience and it's important because when you when you see sweetness in sugar when you see an essence some substance in an object then grasping it seems to make sense if you want sweetness Put it in your coffee. Of course, there's side effects because <laughs> we're only focusing on one one thing. It also is white. You know, if you want some white, there's all kinds of ways to get some white. If you want, you know, a glucose bump in your in your you know, you want a sugar rush. So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of effects when we focus on the one so these distortions of perception lead us to expect satisfaction and that once we're satisfied once we get what we want oh whew, now i'm okay but we're designed we're want machines we're designed you know to want the next thing yeah. don draper in uh, mad men <coughs> you're familiar with him He was an ad exec in the 50s, he said, happiness? Oh, happiness is that moment right after you get what you want and just before you want the next thing. (laughs) The cessation of upadana, the cessation of grasping, is the cessation of dukkha. The liberation from dukkha is the liberation from upadana. And when you, when you are operating without the assumption of, I need this, I want that. When the self is not seeking satisfaction, then it's possible to see what's going on around you without your own interests being projected on it. And what you see is dukkha. And what, what arises with the absence of uh, upadana, tanha, upadana. What arises are the brahma vaharas, equanimity. Krishnamurti was a was an Indian teacher who he set up facilities in Ojai. Any of you guys know his place? You know, and he apparently I never met him, but he apparently had a demeanor that was particularly powerful, so people would. Know, it was palpable, it was tactile. If you've ever been in the presence of, of a you know a charismatically powerful person, you feel it. Somebody asked him what his secret was, what the secret was to his demeanor. He said, My secret? I don't mind what happens. And it's not that unpleasantness and pain doesn't happen, but the response, instead of being aversion, becomes compassion. So we respond out of compassion instead of out of aversion and anger. So equanimity, which is an active state, depending on whether your experience is pleasant or unpleasant. Friendliness, compassion in in the presence of suffering, and joy in the presence of joy. There's nothing in particular that I know of that we have to accomplish in this world, but we can stop hurting ourselves with insight into the nature of dukkha. So that those four teachings are all one teaching. It's one insight the Buddha had and their four teachings are like a hologram. You touch the Buddha's insight from any one of those teachings and you get it all. The cessation of suffering is the cessation of tanha, the cessation of grasping. And the cessation comes through reframing, through seeing with right view, right understanding, without delusion. So my understanding of right view is that the opposite of right view is not wrong view, it's not saying oh yeah everything is permanent really i'm going to you know or, the earth is flat it's the ob- opposite of right view is delusion and the way to the end of delusion the buddha said it's appropriate attention which we're training ourselves to pay attention with our meditation practice and the words of the Dharma, which tell us where to look. We look at the look for the four truths. And the third one is the punchline. It's 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 possible. It's possible because it's just simple. It's not easy. It's conceptually simple. We can study our complaints. We can study how we respond when things are unpleasant. And in the same way that we can bear the discomfort of an itch, maybe not the first time, but we can learn to do that. We can learn to overcome all kinds of unpleasant experience, like hunger and like uh, CNN. <laughs> and the fruit of, of cessation at the Brahma Viharas. So let me just, we have a couple minutes. I thought after going through this, there might be some questions, complaints. Please. So, what do we strive for? What do we strive for? We don't have to strive. What, what I'm, I mean, you certainly can strive for almost anything you want. And we strive for what we think will be pleasant. But what the Buddha found was almost, it's like a glitch in the, in the firmware. You know, we, we our default strategy is to imagine pleasantness or imagine the obliteration of unpleasantness, and then work to try to make it happen. But that is not always doesn't always work. I mean, that's our strategy, as Dr. Phil might say. How's it working for you? You know, striving for some idea of pleasant awakening, enlightenment, whatever recognition, praise. All forms of pleasure and satisfaction. You know, when you're when I've always thought that the pursuit of happiness was a con. Because if you're pursuing it, you're not content. But if you're not pursuing it, you're stuck with what you got. So what the Buddha found was that the this is my interpretation, of course. What the Buddha found was that the only way to be certain to improve the feeling tone of the moment is to not make it worse to not add aversion into the mix In the same way we don't struggle with the itch we don't we don't have to struggle with hunger we can eat out of compassion instead of out of and kindness instead of out of greed and lusting go ahead and Order the creme brulee. I, in my view, this is this I found myself saying this sentence about a week ago, and I'm I've been thinking about it. The middle path lists towards the pleasant. The Buddha found that austerity was not the path. And we can at least treat ourselves, and I mean towards the pleasant for ourselves, not indulgence, but you know, not push ourselves towards pain. That's cruel. You know? you at least teach us, treat ourselves as well as we treat our guests. Yeah. So why not just scratch the a Yeah, you know, uh, there's a great story about Archan Cha sitting in the sitting in the in the Thai forest and you know, there were some Westerners who were visiting and the mosquitoes, and they were doing And he says, you're gonna kill them all? I mean, <laughs> you know, the, tr- the problem is that once you scratch one itch, there'll be another one, and then it's gonna be, oh, I think I need to make that phone call, and there's gonna be some distraction, some dissatisfaction. Because uh, we're built to always look to be solving problems, to always be advancing our agenda, which is Bawa Tanha. You probably talked about bawa tanha last week. That you know, the disposition to to want to survive, to become, to keep on keeping on. That's always going to happen. You won't put an end to it by slapping one mosquito, or scratching one itch, or buying one car, or you know, eating one meal. Or I mean, because you're going to generate the next problem. So the trick is to learn how to. How to not take the bait, because the objects of desire and the objects of aversion are bait, and and you know the t- first two hindrances, kama the, the sensual pleasures and and ill will. Those we focus on the on the object of des- desire or anger, and we don't see our own response, which is. Uncomfortable, if not painful. You know? If you wonder how painful it can be, think of how you feel when you lose someone dear. It's a mental thing that happens, and it can reduce you to it can just knock you down. you know Anybody missed out on that one? The scratching the itch, go for it. But that's just practicing the old, the default strategy. Anything else? Yeah, please. So, um, translating dukkha as dissatisfaction, uh-huh. Right, so there's, an, there's, there's, um, there's a tendency to want, a, to want to take the absence of the negative and make it the positive. In the Dhammapada, um, the phrase arises, hatred never ceases by hatred, and then you have people say, by love alone, the opposite of hatred is love. But the text reads, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by non-hatred. So if you, if you, it's the absence of dissatisfaction, you could say, I mean, if you want to play word games, you can say it's satisfaction, but it's, it's just the absence of dissatisfaction, the absence of dukkha, the absence of the making it worse. You just got this little itch. You just got this, you're just a little hungry. And you can address unpleasantness with kindness instead of anger. You can address it with compassion instead of aversion and resistance. So then, this is the Buddhist path is a path of peace. You know, the struggle for satisfaction is a struggle to get something more pleasant, but you know, pleasant and unpleasant happen on their own. We're not in control of that. I mean, if we were in control of that, it would be real different, wouldn't it? But, you know, that's that's not the way it goes. Anything else? Well, thank you. Oh, please. Could you say something about the Buddha and social action? Socially engaged Buddhism? Mm hmm. Sure. I think there's a... The Buddha was concerned with the intention that one brings to an action. So you can do the same actually overt action with two different intentions. If you honk your car horn, it's the same sound whether you're saying hi or you're, you're flipping them off. It's the same sound. What's important there is the intention so when it comes to social action what's important is the attitude the intention that one brings the intentions of anger and aversion and hatred and fear are not going to be productive of peace they aren't going to reflect peace either they won't reflect compassion so if the if the response is a compassionate one i mean i look at Greta Thunberg seems to me, she's speaking strongly, but she's not speaking hatred. That, Greta Thunberg? I don't hear her speaking hatred. She's speaking strongly. You know, but we can act out of compassion for the suffering of, of all of us. You know, climate change will have effects that we will all feel that we can be angry or we can treat each other kindly and try to help us weather this, help each other weather this, out of compassion for the suffering that it causes us all. Climate change is dukkha. He who should not be named, dukkha. Jack Cornfield used to call NPR the Dukkha Channel. <laughs> maybe he still does, or maybe that seems like a sober place now. So social action, absolutely, but not out of anger. I mean, if that's where you are, that's where you're going to be, but there'll be suffering there. Thank you guys for your attention. Go forth and cling no more.